Good morning, Harvest. How are we doing? Good, good. I hope you guys are enjoying the uh, beautiful sunshine today because I believe the forecast is snow for Tuesday, right? So we're not exactly out of it yet, but it's nice to, to see the sun. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them up to 2 Peter 2. We're going to be in 2 Peter 2 for a little bit, and then we're actually going to jump over to Luke 15. So we're going to be in both of these passages uh, this morning, and I'm excited for what God has for us um, One of the things that's really interesting about my job is I will get hit up with people wanting to meet with me um, about random decisions in their life that that need to be made. And it's kind of like, you never know what's coming. You don't know what the issue is going to be. But I would say on a weekly basis, I'm meeting with someone trying to give them wisdom or counsel into a decision in their life. And one of the things I've learned as I've done this is that there's something about us as people, we, we tend to make a huge deal out of the big decisions in life. We think it's going to be the big decisions in life that are going to define our lives and define the trajectory of our lives. And I would say that 99% of the time that I counsel, I'm counseling on these major life decisions. You know, it will be, hey, Cal, I've got accepted into a couple different colleges. Which one should I go to? Or I'm not exactly sure what I should do with the rest of my life. What major should I choose for for college? I've had those meetings. I have the meeting a lot that's like, all right, I've got um, a job opportunity. Should I take it? That this is what it would pay. This is what it would mean for my family. This is how it would change kind of the, the, the dynamic of my life. Do, do I take this job or do I hold out for another one? Or I'm in a job that I don't like. Should I look for something else? Um, one that I get a lot is, should I buy a house? Right? Do I, do I take that leap and is that wise? And, and, and what does that mean for me? Am I taking on too much debt? Do, do, I, do I buy this house that I have the opportunity to buy? Right? Every once in a while, I'll get the, who, who should I marry? And I'll get that awkward conversation where a guy will bring a girl that he's just started dating to me and, hey, Cal, I want to know what you think about her. And I'm like, man, this is kind of a decision you're going to have to make and you're going to have to live with. Like, that's a lot of pressure for me in that moment. But it's like, are we compatible? Do, do we have a relationship that, that can work? Or are there certain red flags that you see that are going to make it really difficult for, for us to have a life together? Um, a lot of times it will be the, okay, Cal, um, I've got a really good job opportunity, but it's in another state. And so now I've got to think I'm pulling my kids out of school, I'm leaving church, but, but this is what the opportunities could afford. Do, do I make this major decision for our family? Help me understand and process that. Sometimes it's, should my wife and I begin to try to have a baby or should we enter the adoption process? You know, what, what, what is that like? You know, if you know our story, you know that when... Um, I was in middle school, my family adopted three girls. So I'll get a lot of people that, that ask us for adoption advice because that's something that I've walked through in my family. And I would say even in the prayer request cards, like when we read through those and pray through those during the week, um, 90% of them, it's either health concerns people want prayer for, or it's these major life decisions that were like, man, if I don't get this right, or if I get this wrong, my life's gonna get messed up. And here's what I would say. I love counseling those things. I love praying for you in those things. I love talking about those things. Those are important decisions that we need to act with wisdom on. But here's my question. What about the small decisions in life? Why are we so hyper-focused on the big things and yet so often the small decisions in life we give very, very little thought or prayer to? And here's what I mean. 
What do we do when all the kids are in bed and our responsibilities are over? How do we wind down at night, right? We only have a certain amount of energy and effort every day. What do we give our best energies and efforts towards? What are the things we spend our time on? What dominates our thoughts day in, day out, every single day? Because here's what I wanna argue right now. What will ultimately shape our life way more than the big decisions we make very, very frequently are the small decisions we choose to make hundreds of times every single day. Like, think about it. In my life, I will probably make the decision on whether or not to buy a house, what? Three, four, five, six, seven times? Right, but I'm going to decide how I'm going to spend my free time 365 times this year. That is going to shape who I am and what my life is like way more than the big decision. And uh, today we're in a, a set, the second week in a series we're calling Tearing Down Strongholds. And the goal of this series is to look at the things in our life that's causing damage in our relationships with God, the things that God would wanna break down in our lives and he would want to reveal himself to us in those things. And what we're going to talk about today is this idea of tearing down addiction. And um, I think if we do this right this morning, there should be a little sense of uncomfortability in this room because we're going to look at what are the major idols in our heart and the things that we functionally run to as God in our lives that God would want to tear down even this morning in our lives. So I, this isn't in your notes, but if you're taking notes, you might wanna write this down. We came up with a definition of addiction and, and here's what it is, it's this. Addiction is a worship disorder and a voluntary enslavement of the heart and body to something that produces immediate pleasure and relief. That addiction is ultimately a worship disorder. It's an issue with where we are putting our hope and trust and faith in. It is a voluntary enslavement of the heart and body to something that produces immediate pleasure and relief, or another way to say it, it is functionally running to something else, believing it is going to provide us the things that only God can provide. And I would just say, I know even as I preach this message, addiction is, an, is a loaded word, isn't it? Like when I say the word addiction, there are certain things that pop up into our minds. We think of alcoholism, we think of drugs, we think of nicotine, we think of painkillers, we think of sexual addictions like pornography and these overtly destructive things that destroy our bodies and our minds that so many people find themselves caught in its snare. And this is absolutely part of what we are talking about this morning because I know for sure in a room this size, there are for sure multiple, many people who are dealing and battling with these very things. And if you were honest in this moment, it's even hard to step into church because you feel isolated and trapped and so far from God but I don't want it to be limited to just those things. I want to expand the definition a little bit broader because there are other things that are not as overtly destructive, but that can easily become a worship disorder and take a destructive place in our hearts. Food can be an addiction. Coffee 
can be an addiction. Screens, social media, TV, video games, work, the news, sports, working out. These are all things that, that maybe not necessarily bad things, but we make them ultimate things. And we begin to run to those things and believe we need those things if we're going to have hearts and lives that are satisfied and fulfilled. They take the place of God in our lives. And the way the Bible talks about it is the Bible doesn't use the word addiction. That's a very, very much new American term. The way the Bible phrases it is what masters you? At the end of the day, what is your ruler? What is your master? And uh, in 2 Peter 2, we see Peter talk about this to a church. And just a little bit of context, Peter is writing uh, to a church in Jerusalem. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And Peter is warning the church that there's going to be false teachers who come. And he says, one of the ways you can pick out the false teachers is they're going to encourage you to live worldly lives. They're going to say, God lets you do whatever you want. You don't need to uh, submit your lives to him. You don't need to say no to anything. Just do whatever makes you feel good. That's what God wants for you. And look what he says about them in verse 17. He's talking about these false teachers. He says, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, listen to this, this is kind of, kind of a, a bummer. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Doesn't sound great. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. And look at verse 19. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And, and this word overcomes, that's this idea, this is something that masters someone. This is someone, something that consumes someone. And he says, whatever you're mastered by, whatever you're consumed by, ultimately you're going to be a slave to that thing. Paul writes about this same idea in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. He writes this, he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And he says, listen, there's freedom in Christ that, that we don't have to say no to these certain things and everything's created by God and there is good in everything, but I'm not gonna let anything take the place in my life where it consumes me and dominates me and takes a place that is unhealthy in my life. So I put fences around my life to make sure that I'm not dominated by anything. Jesus in Matthew 6, when talking about money, says this, he says, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate one and love the other, and he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he says, you cannot serve God and money. Jesus probably uses the most aggressive language out of the three where he says, you're gonna end up hating God if your master in life functionally is money. You can't have two masters. Only one thing will set the trajectory and course of your life. Okay, and so listen, I'm not a, a brilliant guy, but when Peter, Jesus, and Paul all take time to give this exact same warning, that means it's something we should probably pay attention to, right? Peter was tracking with this, Paul was tracking with this, and even Jesus is like, you need to be really careful about in the small things in your life, functionally, what is mastering you, what is dominating you, because it can lead to destruction. So what we need to do this morning is we need to start by asking ourselves, what are the things in our life that are mastering us? Is there anything in my life 
that I am addicted to. Big things, small things, are there things in my heart that are unhealthy? And I wanna take some time to walk through this slowly because I want us to, to meet with the Lord this morning and do some of this work right now. So we've come up with a list of, of seven here. And it's this idea that I know I'm mastered by something when. And I wanna talk about seven indicators that there might be something that is mastering your heart even right now. Here's the first, I know I'm mastered by something when I can't stop thinking about it when I can't stop thinking about it. That means that throughout the day, the thing that consumes my mind, the thing that consumes my thought, what, what, what I um, am thinking about when I think about nothing, right? Like that's a good question to ask. When you shut your brain off and you're not thinking about anything, what do you gravitate towards? What's sitting as that first thing that's always on the front of your mind? Or maybe I, I can put it this way, this might be helpful. Everything else in my life is just a chore that I have to get through until I can get to the thing that I really want, right? So I'm just gonna grit my teeth and, and grind through work and then I'm gonna have to figure out how to deal with my wife and kids because once they're all in bed, then I get to watch my shows. Or it's like, man, I just gotta gut it out through the work week and deal with that because then on the weekends, I'm on my boat and everything is how it's supposed to be. Right, maybe you're like sitting in church right now and practically in your mind, you're on the third hole, you know, on the front nine, right? You're like, I just gotta get through church. Come on, Cal, there's like three nice days this week. Talk faster so I can get on the golf course. It's the thing where like everything else is just something to get through until I can have my thing. Here's another way you know you're mastered by something. I can't say no to it. And this is really the heartbreaking reality of addictions is that what happens is it's something that we used to love, that we used to run through, we now begin to hate and we begin to see the devastation it brings into our lives, but we can't say no to it. And man, I've talked with so many people caught in addiction, whether it be pornography or alcohol or drugs, and they're like, Cal, I hate this. I hate that I run to this. I hate that it dominates me. I see how it affects my children and my family and I, how it negatively impacts my relationship with God. And I hate it, but I keep going back over and over and over again. I'm trapped, right? It's that person who says, man, I hate that the phone in my hand consumes my life. And I will need to put my phone away and I need to set some boundaries, but every stinking week when that notification on my phone pops up of how many hours I'm on it a day, I don't even look at it because I already know what it's going to say. The things that I know are unhealthy, I keep running to. It's controlling us. Here's one, I'm a different person without it. I know I'm being mastered by something if I'm a different person without that thing. Right, like how many of us have said, man, I cannot function in the morning if I don't have coffee. Like I'm not even a human, I'm not even alive. If I don't have that, that, that coffee, I cannot make it through the day. Or maybe you're like, man, I'm just stressed out and, I, and, I'm, and I'm anxious and I need to level off and I need to just have a cigarette. Like I'll be myself, I, I, I just gotta, gotta get back to me. And the only way I can be myself is if I get some nicotine in my system. Or man, I just can't relax at night unless I have a drink. I'm too wound up. I'm wound too tightly. I can't really cut back and, and be myself unless there's that drink in my hand. I need it to be who I am. 
It's a pretty huge red flag that we're being mastered by something if we need it to feel normal. Here's one. Um, I make excuses for it. I make excuses for it. Well, everyone that I run with, they do this thing. And it's not that big a deal. A lot of people are doing it. And in fact, this is, how, this is all I know. Like my grandparents did this. My family did this. My folks did this. This is just part of what it is to be a, a, a Wisen. And, and it's how I grew up. And it's all that I know. And, and, and this is what we always do. Or maybe we say, you know what? God, actually, like I'm doing well in these eight areas. Like I'm crushing it here. So this thing, it's not that bad. If you look at the big picture, I'm actually doing quite well. It's just this one one area of issue in my life. I've got this one thing that's unhealthy, but I'm really crushing it in these other eight things. Can we like focus on this for a moment? That'd be nicer. Uh, Here's when I make sacrifices for it. I make sacrifices for it a few years ago. I had a, a friend who, who was part of our church and um, all of a sudden, like, he just went MIA. Like, like, I stopped coming to church, stopped coming to small group, pulled his kids out of youth ministry, stopped serving. And, and I remember meeting with him and I thought, like, there was an issue between us or, or he was mad or, or there, there was something wrong. And I was like, what, what, what's going on with you, man? Like, you just kind of dropped off the face of the earth. And he's like, no, everything's good. I got no issues. I still love the church. We have just gotten really, really busy with youth sports. And so now instead of youth group, my kid goes to practices. Instead of small groups, I'm taking him to games. And on the weekends, we have tournaments. So I just don't have space for for any uh, uh, of Christian stuff or God stuff in my life because we're really busy with youth sports and we're pursuing that thing. And I'm like, man, are you sacrificing some really good things at the altar of youth sports. You know, this is something I was convicted of even in the past few weeks where I'd gotten home from work and our family had had dinner and I went to my phone and I was reading Twitter or catching up on the news or something. And my kids had decided to play a board game together. And I was there, I was in the room, but you know, I wasn't really there because I was on my phone and I'm sitting on my chair and all of a sudden I hear Judah just start cracking up and belly laughing. And, I, and it like caught my attention. So I look up and here, here are my kids around the table. Bo had just made a joke. Judah started laughing. My girls are laughing. They're all having an incredible time. And it's like, wow, am I sacrificing a better thing right now because I'm on my phone? Like, why am I not engaged in this in a more deeper level? We sacrifice better things for this thing. Here's one. And I think this one is obvious. I'm gonna hide it right? This is the thing that no one else is going to know about, right? And I don't care if I'm in small group. I don't care if I come to church. I don't care if I have good community and Christian friends in my life. I will talk about everything else except this thing. No one's touching this thing. I'm going to keep it a secret. It's mine. No one else needs to know. And then the last one is I am defensive of it. I am defensive of it. You know, it was interesting back a few years ago when I was doing youth ministry, I had a student come to me and the student was a a high schooler. And he's like, Cal, I'm really concerned. I'm struggling with a lot of doubt in my walk with God right now. I feel far away. I feel disconnected from God. And and I I just need your help. So I was kind of unpacking his life, talking about what he spends his time on and what he was doing and when this started happening. I'm just trying to help counsel him and help figure out what's at the root of his heart. And this kid was a musician. And he was a talented musician and he loved music. And as I talked to this kid, it became very, very clear that the, the idol in his heart was the music he listened to. 
And not that it was inherently evil, it just had an unhealthy place in his heart. And he was a kid that from the moment he woke up until the moment he went to bed, he had a playlist on and it was just constant music all the time. And there was never even a quiet moment where he could engage with the Lord in a real way because music was dominating everything. And I remember asking the kid, I'm like, do you think that like music has an unhealthy place in your heart? Do you think that we might need to put up some guardrails around this, that this might be the thing that's dominating you? And it's funny because in that moment, he got so mad at me. He's like, absolutely not. I'm not convicted about that at all. So I don't know what my problem is, but it's definitely not that because I don't feel convicted about it at all. In fact, I don't even want to talk to you about my music anymore. You wouldn't understand. And I just remember walking away being like, it doesn't matter what else we talk to because until he is less defensive of the thing that's really the problem, he's never gonna gain traction. But we defend it, we make excuses for it, we hide it. All right, so now I get to ask the fun question. As you look at that list on the screen, is there anything in your life that checks those boxes? And I can't pretend to know where your heart is or or, or what's going on in your life, but I know the Holy Spirit is here and the Holy Spirit is present and resides in you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. So I get to trust that God's spirit is going to do what he promises to do and he's going to bring things to mind that might be like, all right, this is entering an unhealthy place, an addiction level in my life. All right, so if you have your Bibles, I wanna turn to Luke 15. And we're gonna look at a super famous story that Jesus told to help us understand both the pathway that takes us towards sin and addiction and how we can step out of that place. Look at Luke 15, verse 11. And we're gonna look at the pathway to addiction. And we're gonna look at a parable that Jesus tells, a very famous story. He says this in Luke 15, verse 11. He says, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Okay, and the first thing we see in this story is that addiction begins with a choice. Addiction begins with a choice. And what I want to focus on in this message is the heart of the prodigal son. And here's what's interesting about this story. You have this kid who, for all intents and purposes, um, has a pretty good setup and a pretty good life. Like everything we know about this father is that this father is a very, very good father. In fact, if you know this parable, you know that Jesus means for the father to represent God himself. So you have this son who has lived this life with a very, very loving, kind, and good father. He is not fleeing from an abusive situation. He's not fleeing from from a disaster or chaos, but he has a father who he is living under his father's protection. His father has provided for him. His father has cared for him. His father has given him everything he needed, and his father has set him up for success. His father has built wealth. He has set that wealth aside and he is preserving it for his son because he wants his son to have every good and best thing. And yet there comes a moment where ultimately the younger son makes a choice, right? He says, dad, that's not enough for me. It's not enough to live under your protection and care. Give me what's mine and let me go. I think there's something better out there for me. So he ran, all right, and church, look here. 
we make the same exact choice when we say, God, I don't believe that you're enough. I don't believe that you're satisfied. I don't believe that you're the thing that will bring me peace. I believe this thing that's out there is the thing that I need and is better for me than you are. And here's the thing. The Bible clearly lays out for us what God's plan for our life is and what God desires for us and how we can have a life that is filled with blessing and joy and protection. God's word lays out clearly how we interact with one another, what we set our hearts towards, what we prioritize, what we stay away from, what what rebellion looks like, what sin looks like. And what God promises is, is, listen, if you live under my care and protection, I want the best for you. That's what God wants for us. Look in Proverbs 3, starting at verse 3. It's on the screen. It says this. It says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. Look at this, look at the promise. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be wise, not in your own eyes, fear the Lord and turn away from evil and it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Do you see what God's promising there? Like if you honor me and if you love me and if you turn away from evil and if you acknowledge me, the promises are incredible. It's straight paths. It is favor in the sight of God and man. It is life. It is refreshment to our bones. And what God's saying is, listen, freedom is not found outside of my authority and care. Freedom is willingly placing yourself under the best authority and care. You want a free life, you're not gonna find it out there. You're gonna find it in my arms. Like church, I've said this so often and we need to believe it. God's not trying to rob you of anything. He already owns everything. He's not trying to steal anything from you. He's trying to lead you into life and joy. But but listen, God is also not the over-obsessive parent who's gonna keep his kid locked in his room so they can't run. And God will love us enough that he will release us to our idols and he will allow us to run just like this father let the prodigal son go. And when we choose to run to addiction or idolatry or other things we think will provide for our lives, life and happiness, we are making the same choice. Second thing we see in this story is that addiction ends in slavery. Addiction ends in slavery. Look at verse 14. It says, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him in to his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. It doesn't take long for that kid to go from a place of thinking he knew what was best for him to a place of misery, right? Like it doesn't take long to go from I'm going to be free to I am caught in slavery. And and here's why. Sin always over promises and under delivers. Sin always promises immediate satisfaction, but ends in lifelong pain and misery. Sin only always makes things worse. Like, like Like I'm just gonna be honest. I've never had anyone say to me, you know what would really changed my life for the better? You know what really like turned everything around in my life is when I started looking at pornography. Like after that, man, everything became amazing. 
It was awesome. It was incredible. I had no more problems. It was just porn was the thing that changed everything for me. It made me so much more free. Now, that's not what happens, right? I've never had the person say to me, man, I had so much stress and anxiety and, prom- and like problems in my life, but then I just started drinking heavily and all my problems went away. Like the cure for everything is just to keep on drinking. It makes everything better. No, that's insanity. But in the moment, we're like, no, this is gonna provide immediate relief or pleasure or satisfaction, but it's only going to accelerate the issues, make things worse. Look here, that thing that you run to, that thing that you obsess over, that thing that you think is going to be the thing that's going to fulfill your life and bring you satisfaction cannot fulfill the eternal longings of your soul that only our eternal creator, the one who made us, can fulfill. Psalm 107 says this, It says, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. The things we run to outside of God will always take us farther than we wanna go. They're always gonna cost more than we want to pay and they're always going to leave us wanting. Look at verse 17. It says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And the third thing we see is that freedom from addiction is found in the father. Freedom, true freedom is only found in God himself. And if you take notes in your Bible, underline, highlight, circle that phrase, but when he came to himself, because that was the moment when everything changed for the son. The son has this moment where he looks at what his sin has led him to. And he has this realization that, man, the things that my father said and the things that my father offered and the protection and love and care that I had under my father are way better than the things that I thought I wanted. He had this moment where he got his eyes vertical and he understood, man, this path that I have chosen has led to chaos and destruction. And my father was good and he knew what was best and he loved me all along. He had this moment where he came to himself. You see, that's where freedom starts. When we get our eyes off of ourselves and we point them vertically to God. Like, here's what I would say. Um, The son got a lot wrong, but this he got really, really right. And here's my fear, church. My fear is that there are some of you in this room this morning who are never gonna have that moment where you come to yourself. And you're here and you're feeling the conviction of the Lord, but your heart is so resolved that nothing is going to change you that you are not going to yield, that you are not going to repent, that you're not going to get your eyes vertical and that thing that dominates your life, you're going to let it continue to dominate your life. You're not gonna stop. You're not gonna slow down. And you're like, Cal, I just wanna get out of this freaking room right now because it's driving me crazy. Your heart is still resisting the Lord. But ultimately, it's not enough just to realize that freedom is found in God. You have to actually go back to him. And so what I wanna do right now is I wanna look at how this story finishes and look at three steps out of the bondage of addiction. Look at verse 20. 
It says, and he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. And the first thing you need to see is the step out of the bondage of addiction is you have to flee back to God. And I think this is an underappreciated part of this story. I love that the younger son actually went home. Like there's courage in that, isn't there? I don't think we give this prodigal son enough credit. Like there's a huge temptation in the moment when you are miserable and you are caught in addiction and you feel enslaved where the last thing you wanna do is go back to God, right? Like it takes humility to be like, God, I've been an idiot and I've pursued the wrong things and I have forsaken you and I thought I knew better and I've spent days, months, years, decades pursuing things outside of you and I am empty and I am wanting and I am miserable. Like I think the easy thing in that moment would be for the son to just stay in that slavery and feel sorry for himself and feel isolated from the family that loves him. But that's not what he did. You see, he had the courage to come home. And like, listen, again, the son got a lot wrong in this story. And the son is very far from being put together when he goes back to the father, but he got the most important thing right. He knew where to go. He knew where home was. And then you see how he is received, right? How, how, how does God receive him? He's not condemned. He's not shamed. It's not a, I told you so moment, or hey, you're gonna have to work off the money that you squandered. It's no, no, my son is home and I love you and, and get the, the ring, get, I'm gonna put it on your finger. That means you are my child and your inheritance is restored and your status is restored. And I'm gonna give you my best clothes and I'm gonna bring the, the, the servants and the workers and we're gonna kill my most prized calf and we're gonna have a party and we're gonna celebrate because I love you so much and I don't care about where you've been. I'm thankful that you're home and I love you and you're mine and that's never gonna change. See, the truly amazing thing about the gospel is that for some reason, God delights in restoring broken people who don't deserve it. And he does it over and over and over again. And listen, every single one of us in this room, myself included, have had moments when we're the prodigal son. And yet God comes home. And the thing that defines all of us is we have been embraced by God and he has given us his ring and his cloak and he has celebrated with us because we who were far away are home and that's what God delights. And he delights in it so much. He gave Jesus Christ to die and be that sacrifice for our rebellion. God has given everything so that you might have that moment where you return home and can be embraced by your creator and loved. It's the beauty of the gospel and I can barely even comprehend it, but man, is it worth giving your life to? Listen, whatever circumstances you find yourself in right now, you know it's not too late, right? Like someone needs to hear that. It's not too late. You're not too far gone. God delights in restoring people who are in broken and messy situations. Second thing, second step, out of the bondage of addiction is find a home in the family of God. 
find a home in the family of God. And I think um, it's interesting. Go back up to verse 24. There's something I want you to see here. He says, for this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Then look at the last thing there. It says, and they began to celebrate. And again, if you take notes in your Bible, underline that word they, because what that means is it wasn't just the father that was thrilled that the son was home. It was his entire household. They had a huge party that night and the servants were there and and the kids were there and the cousins were there and mom was there. And there was a big party because everyone was excited that the son was home outside of a pouty older brother who had his own issues that God had to work with him on. Right, but what I love is, is listen, um, it wasn't just the father, but there was a family that this son was brought back into and that family was just as excited and loving and kind to the son. See, one of the most powerful lies Satan tells all of us is that if people really knew who I was, if I really exposed everything, I would be rejected by God and by others. If you knew my whole story, if you knew everything I've done, if I was defined by my worst moments, no one would love me, no one would care for me. And you need to understand, it's a lie. It's a lie that that the enemy is using to keep you stuck, right? You see it in the story, everyone knew what happened to the son. And guess what they did? They threw a party, they celebrated, he's back, we love him, he's part of our family, let's rejoice. And guys, I've seen this in our church. Over and over again, people have come to a moment where it's like everything needs to be out on the table and and I've exposed the things that I've kept hidden for so long. And guess how they're met with in those moments, whether it be through small group or soul care or, or, or in any other way. It's with grace, it's with love, it's with encouragement, it's with support. I'm with you, I'm here for you, I'm gonna help you. I'm going to bear this burden with you because we're a family and we are all saved by grace and this is what the people of God do. Listen, people whose lives are defined by the gospel and grace will respond with grace when their brothers and sisters repent and reveal sin in their lives. It has to be that way. We have to break this lie that the enemy tells us that says, man, if people knew everything, I'd be rejected. And here's why we have to break it. Because as long as you believe that lie, you're never going to see that it is a lie. You'll never get to experience the love and and, and kindness and grace of being fully known and fully loved because you've always kept something back. And therefore you can always continue to believe that same lie. Well, if they knew this, they wouldn't love me. And it's not true, but it's a lie we believe all the time. Then here's the third. Um, we need to believe in the promises of God. We need to believe in the promises of God. And I understand that the story of the prodigal son is just that. It's a story and it's a parable. But I always think about what, what did the rest of that son's life look like? And if I were the prodigal son, here would be the biggest challenge for me moving forward. It wouldn't be the day I came home. That would be hard. It wouldn't be the party. I think what might be the hardest part would be that next morning. Like, like does, does my father still love me? <laughs> it, or, or did he sleep on it and did he get angry? Like, like, I understand that like I'm home and there was this emotional moment and everyone's excited. But now that that's kind of settled, am I still loved? Am I still part of the family? Are these things that God said about me still true? 
And I think that's what it means for us to walk by faith is we have to believe that what God says about us is true, even when we feel like failures and even when we feel like we don't deserve it. And even we're like, man, this seems too incredible to be true. Can I ask you a really important question? Do you guys have memorized any promises that God gives to you for moments when you're weak and you're feeling tempted and you feel like you're full of despair and wanna run? Like, do you have practical promises of God that you hold on to for moments when life is difficult? When you're like, man, I can't figure out where due north is, but I know what God says, so I'm gonna hold on to that. Because listen, they're all over scripture and you can Google them, you can meet with a pastor. We'd love to help give you some of these promises to, to, to hold on to, but I'm just gonna share with you mine. Um, and, and I would say that this has been the most important passage of scripture in my life the last two years. And in a lot of moments when life is hard, when, life, when I've been faltering, when my faith has been weak and I've wanted to punt, um, God has used this passage of scripture to absolutely change my life. It's this, it's Galatians 6, 9 and 10. It says this, it says, and let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then, since we have, as we have every opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially those of the household of faith, right? And I'll tell you, there's been moments over the past 18 months where it's like, man, I wanna give up. Life is difficult and, and, and this is hard and, and I'm tired and I'm weak and I'm frustrated. And what God has been good to do is say, hey, remember, remember that you will reap. I will reward. I will be faithful. Keep doing good. Don't give up because you're going to receive your reward if you hang in there. And so listen, if you're looking for a promise of God, I'll let you steal mine right now. You can have it for free. I didn't write it. It's not even mine, but you can have it. We need to hold on to these promises because we're not strong enough to do it in our own strength. We have to believe in the goodness of our Father. Okay, so here's what I wanna do. I wanna close with a very, very practical question. And it's this, it's the closing question in your notes. It's where are you running for comfort and relief? Right now, as you sit here today, where are you running for comfort and relief? What is the thing that you believe that you need to make it through the day or the week? And uh, the reason I wanna close with this question is very, very simple. Church, I think we have a unique um, opportunity to give ourselves over to really unhealthy things in this season. And here's what I mean. I would say, if we think about it, the last 15 months has been traumatic for all of us, hasn't it? Like all of our lives, like think about it. All of our lives have been disrupted by a worldwide pandemic in very, very significant ways. All of us 18 months ago, if you were to say, this is what the next 18 months look like, we would have been like, no way. And jobs have been lost and people are tired and they're weary and their lives have been disrupted. And I talk, and by the way, I feel this too. I talk to so many people, I'm just so sick of it. I'm so tired, I'm so worn out. I'm tired of the frustration. I'm tired of the regulations. I'm tired of all of it. And so all of us, we need to understand this. Our hearts come in here and they are weary. And when we are tired and when we're weary and when we're exhausted, there's a very, very real temptation to run to the things that are going to bring immediate satisfaction and relief. 
And I'm concerned that what we're going to see over the next two years is a lot of people run to really, really unhealthy things that bring devastation into their lives. So the reason why we wanna talk about tearing down strongholds and specifically the issue of addiction is knowing where we just are in life and as a country and as a world, like this is something we need to wrestle with the Lord right now. So if you would close your eyes and bow your heads, here's what I wanna do. I just wanna give us a minute or two and and really allow you some space to meet with the Lord and, and, and talk to him about what's on your heart. Maybe this is the moment where you take that first step and you flee back to God. And you say, hey, God, here are the things that I have been running to. Here are the things that have been mastering me, that have been dominating me. And I know that they've taken an unhealthy place and I need your help because I am not free, but I know that you bring freedom. Just wanna give a minute for us right now in the quietness of this morning. There's nothing more important than meeting with the Lord. What do you need to tell him? He knows, he's here. He sees and he loves you and he forgives and he empowers and he restores. Dear Heavenly Father, would you, um, would you just help us? God, would you give us the humility to open our hearts up before you? God, would we believe the promises that when we are weary and heavy laden, that you offer us rest? That the burdens of life and the sin that we carry and the idols in our heart and the things that we run to, that we can be refreshed from those things that you have already taken those on yourself. God, would we be open and honest and have the humility to say, God, I don't want those things anymore. I want you. And I wanna honor you and I wanna live a life that is transparent and is humble and seeks to bring you glory. God, would you reveal the areas in our hearts where where that hasn't been the case? Would your spirit move? We love you. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your gospel, your forgiveness, your grace. Would you help us believe it? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.